0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sup China. SubChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, mobile phone app, and on subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Today, we're coming to you from the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by a man who only ever communicates from his own secret email server, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy?
0: I'm doing very well. I just uh, deleted all those uh, emails that oh, good were good, good, good. asking about. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you It's It's actually really rare that the two of us have the opportunity to speak with somebody who has made his name thinking and writing about the really big topics in Chinese politics. That's you know the nature of the leadership itself. It's composition, the, the factions that inevitably form and that inevitably contend within the very highest echelons of, of, of Chinese political power. But today we're very pleased to have somebody who is focused on the party leadership, who has helped shape thinking about it within American China watching circles, but who is himself from mainland China of Chinese origins. And so we're very pleased to be joined by Cheng Li, or Li Cheng, as you'd call him in China. He is director of the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution, and has authored and edited many articles, papers, and anthologies about elite politics in China. Uh, Li Cheng, or Cheng Li, a very warm welcome to Seneca, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to to us. Honor to be here.
0: Um, first of all, uh should we call you Li Chang or Chang Li? <laughs> I think either way would be fine, but actually
2: it's always confusing for people. But uh, I usually told my students when I was professor that uh, my name is the combination of the last name of Jet Li and Jackie Chen. Okay, <laughs> it's uh Li the Li and
0: uh <laughs>
2: Chen. And my Kung Fu skill is also a combination of these two. Awesome. So immediately, we break the ice.
0: <laughs> well, that, they good. showed
2: respect. That's yeah, good. we should be that's careful not good. to no, offend that. No, we?
0: we better not ask any uh, questions, <laughs> any, <laughs> any questionable questions. questions, Kaiser. Okay, C- can we start off? I- I'd really like to ask about your early education. Uh, from my reading, I gather you worked as a barefoot doctor in the late years of the Cultural Revolution. If that's the case, can you talk a little bit about that and how you got from being a barefoot doctor in China to Berkeley in the 1980s and then well, to Princeton? actually, I had the shoes. I, I was not really a barefoot doctor. Barefoot doctor, by
2: definition, uh, only received three months medical education. I got the three years. So actually, uh, in definition, I was not a barefoot doctor. But uh, the schooling at that time uh, reduced from six years to three years. We also should put in perspective, at that time, towards the end of the Cultural Revolution, no one wanted to be a medical doctor because my sister, who is about 13 years senior than me, was a professional trade medical doctor, went to medical school for six years. Then she was sent to the countryside. And, uh, so my mother was very unhappy when I decided to pursue medical career again. And, uh, so that's the background. So I did a practice as a, a medical doctor after three years training. This is still towards the Cultural Revolution, end of Cultural Revolution and practice in Shanghai, work as a medical doctor for four years. So altogether, I have seven years experience, the first three years as a, as uh, in the medical school, then uh, the later four years as a medical doctor. Now, of course, it, uh, uh, usually I hesitate to say so because it's quite misleading. In the United States, medical doctor is such a prestigious position. You first you should finish college education, then went to uh, uh, medical school. But in China, just like uh, former Soviet Union and many European countries, you can directly go to medical school after high school. So this is what I did. So again, it's uh, not prestigious. And uh, and also, uh, again, most uh, young people would rather to be a shop assistant rather than went to medical school <laughs> for the reason that I just explained early on.
1: And when did you go to the States then?
2: So, uh, so in my case, that after medical practice, I went to college just to reverse, uh, from many other people. So I went to the East China normal universities to study comparative literature. So I graduated in 1985. Mm-hmm. So immediately, I went to the United States to study, try to continue my education. And I thought that I will attend the the program also heavily on uh, comparative literature at UC Berkeley. But actually, when I entered the program, I realized that I went to wrong program because at the UC Berkeley, there are three programs, uh, Asian related or Asian study-related. One is on language and literature, uh, which I wanted to go, but I did not go. The mm-hmm. other is on politics and the economy. And, uh, which I went, and the third one is on, uh, Asian Americans. So I went to the second one to study politics and economics. Uh, so under the tutoring by Bob Scalpino. Right? Yeah. and Charles Johnson, Laurie Dittimer and Frederick Wakeman and Tom Gold and many others.
1: Many of whom were also my professors at Berkeley. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. That's right. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, uh, so that's the, uh, uh, my experience. So it's not intentional. I went to wrong program, but, uh, uh, towards the end, I become uh, I really become interested in uh, uh, these subjects.
1: Yeah, and you couldn't have had better mentorship. I mean, that was you just rattled off a list of some of the finest scholars of contemporary Chinese. Yeah, politics I'm truly,
2: or... truly grateful for these mentors. I mean, uh, these are intellectual gurus, and they have a profound understanding of China. So many of them are still alive. Some of them in the past way, like Bob Scappino and Chum Johnson. I miss them. Dearly, and they have a strong impact on my professional career mm. and uh, to a certain extent on my world views
1: uh, I actually first encountered your work when I was a graduate student i was I was looking at the discourse around neo-authoritarianism or uh, in the 1980s. And what struck me was how suffused all that discussion was with not the language of, of, of science and democracy, but more of scientism and technocracy. And as I started looking at technocrats, naturally, I came across the work you were doing at Princeton with Lynn White. It made a very deep impression on me. And for quite some time, I was very convinced that understanding technocrats, understanding technocracy, its appeal to China, its close relationship with, you know, China's own political culture, that that was really the key to understanding the post-Mao leadership. So two things. First, I want you to talk about how thoroughly Technocratic China was at the peak uh, of that, and also how China's political culture was so suffused and dominated by technocratic thinking. And secondly, I want I want you to, to talk, if if possible, about whether that's still the case, whether today in the 18th Party Congress. Uh, is still dominated by technocrats. I mean, obviously the Politburo Standing Committee is no longer dominated by technocrats, but if that is changing, why do you think that it, it, it's changed and when
2: do you think it began to wane and and what do you think it's becoming now? Well, there are a lot of good questions here and um, uh, you raise. Uh, first of all, let me say that I started interested in that subject when I was a graduate student at Berkeley in uh, 1987 when I uh, decided to write my master's thesis under the uh, supervision by Bob Scarpino. And uh, I wrote a thesis about a comparative study of rise of technocrats mm-hmm. on uh, on both sides of the Taiwan street. At mm-hmm. that time, Taiwan was already dominated by technocrats under the Jiang jingguo's leadership. And uh but the in China is only the beginning, and the technocrats by definition and um uh, three things one is that uh they should receive uh education in engineering
1: or natural and, sciences uh, or natural
2: sciences and uh, uh then they practice as uh engineers or as scientists, and finally they serve as uh, leadership positions, so you should have all these three criteria to be considered as technocrats now this definition differs from the United States or some democracies, because uh, in the U.S. They have different definition, because technocrats are usually uh, selected and politicians are elected. But in a country like China, all leaders, you know, uh, political leaders are you know selected. So I d- I uh, uh, do not use that whether selected or elected, but rather use these three uh, criteria as mm-hmm. a definition mm-hmm. of technocrats. Now uh, in the middle of 1980s or late 80s, just beginning. And uh, then you see the rise of, uh, like, people like Li Pen, like, mm-hmm. uh, Zhu Rongji and Zhang Zemin. And a few years later, they dominated them, the political leadership. And uh, then I continued to work with my mentor, Lin White at Princeton, and wrote my PhD thesis on the rise of technocracy in China, focused on Tsinghua University, which is cradle of Chinese technocrats. Yes, very much. Uh, uh, in 1990s, really dominated by Tsinghua graduates and, uh, like Hu Jintao and, uh, and, and many others. Uh, but also Xi Jinping also did his undergraduate as an engineer, but uh, his PhD is quite uh, different in Marxism or, or law that uh, uh, sometimes also identify. Now, so uh, that was the 1990s and um, uh, late 80s, 1990s, and not until just uh, a couple of decades ago. But uh, now look at the current leadership, it's already started to change. At the moment, the technocrats only among the seven members of the standing committee consider they are the highest degree they, they obtain, only one person, technocrat. This is Yu Zheng mm-hmm. because his uh, highest degree is engineering and um, from Harbin Institute of Technology. All other leaders, including uh, Li Keqiang and uh, Xi Jinping, their highest degrees is either economics or law, law or politics right. and etc. So you see the rise and decline of technocrats. Now, but uh, that's interesting because for several reasons, I just give you two. One, for the first one, is that the Sinologists uh, usually talk about the Chinese uh, culture emphasized on Confucianism, which is basically memorization, and the classics, and the writings, and choreographies, and many other things. They consider as a technical skills as secondary important. Now, this is also part of the what uh, uh, the famous British uh, sinologist, his name is Joseph uh, niederham He has a paradox; it's under his name called niederham Paradox. Mm-hmm. Try to explain why China declined, uh in the, about the fourteenth, fifteenth uh, century, or or later. And his reason is that the the, the regime pays too much attention to classic knowledge, but not to science and technology in the modern sense. That's the reason attributed to China's decline, according to Niederheim. But uh, again, in 1980s and the 1990s, China now emphasized uh, technical knowledge. So that also contribute to the so-called economic rise of China and the gigantic uh, Constructions and, uh, in China, like the Three Gorge Dam, urbanization and, uh, The South North and, and Water Diversion Project. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is related with the so many dam engineers or bridge engineers. So many or, dam uh, engineers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the reason, uh, uh, contributed that, uh, that the economic rise over, uh, emphasized economic development. But now they start to decline because the, the, uh, the, the issues become quite different. Sometimes, uh, the, Technical mindset could not resolve the social problem, especially economic uh, disparity and uh, the tensions and the, the importance of rule of law and etc. So you see the decline of technocrats, uh, rise of those who train in social sciences, including economics and also law. Now, that's interesting because it compare with Taiwan. Taiwan also experienced similar, you know, transformation first from revolution leaders to technocrats then from technocrats to those trained in the social sciences you look at the Taiwanese leaders whether it be uh, Chen shui bian or Ma Ying-jiu or Lu Xiu-lian and uh, the currently Tsai uh, Ing-wen they have one thing in common they all got law degrees that's right Right, so that's a fascinating change. This attribute related with Taiwan's transition to democracy. That happened earlier,
1: of course. That I mean, during the 1980s, you already saw that transition away from technocrats, right?
2: Well, it's uh, uh, probably 1980s too early because uh, in the 90s, uh, it's more like 90s. But uh, at that time you already see that uh, uh, some of the uh, these lawyers, uh, human rights lawyers, uh, Chen Sui-bian was in jail early on in the 1980s. They all involved the movement because I particularly focus on a magazine called Da Xue University. Mm-hmm. And it's the uh, intellectual discourse and uh, talk about the importance of law and the political democracy, etc. Reflect the intellectual dynamics in Taiwan Island. So that's the... That's the situation similar to a certain extent to China in 1989 and also early 1980s, that movement. But of course, that the result is a little bit different. But on the other hand, the so-called elite transformation uh, on the uh, both sides of Taiwan Street is very similar.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So
2: uh, this certainly uh, provides kind of hope or optimism for China's similar transition for democracy. Maybe I'm a little bit naive or too simplistic, but... Uh, uh, I think that the process, uh, is still, uh, in the working. And although China and, uh, could differ from Taiwan because of the size, because of many other factors. Uh, but on the other hand, it's important to understand, although communist China, you know, continue to rule China, but the elites, the composition of communist party profoundly changed. That's right. Not only change once, but actually change twice. First from revolution leaders to technocrats, now from technocrats, to those trained in social sciences, including law. And another important development is the rise of entrepreneurs in China. Now, according to Joseph Needham, entrepreneurs also consider as the a, a low class. Right. Because businessmen is not the high class, according to Confucian tradition. Mm-hmm. But now, entrepreneurs, people like Jack Ma, like Wang Si, like uh, Robin Li, they all become very, very important, whether they work in state sectors or private sectors, and etc. This is a new force start to emerge, so in a way that uh, the the water needlehand may Joseph Needham explain the decline of China now because China recruits technocrats, intellectuals, and also entrepreneurs into the elite. So this is to certain extent what Jiang Zemin called the three represents. That's right. So that related with China's economic rise. People
1: will look back on the three represents and realize that it was actually really quite a transformative. That's right, even doctrine.
0: though a very clumsily phrased, but if we can go back to sort of the rise of people with like legal or economic training, I mean, if we're looking at Xi Jinping, he he does use the phrase "rule of law" quite a lot but what he means by it is not really something that we would call rule of law in the United States or in other Western countries or even in Taiwan. Um, I mean, how is this different from Taiwan? Because it's not, I mean, it's it's definitely not that we're not just seeing the same thing play out. There's something different going on. Well, I see your point. It is
2: a very important uh, observation, but I think that uh, I wanted to try to uh, express my different uh, view. And uh, of course, that uh, Xi Jinping, what he talked about the rule of law, it, at least there's quite ambiguous uh, when it comes to whether the supreme power should lie on constitution or line on the party. Uh, there's deliberate ambiguities in that regard. And uh, from certain occasions, he talk about the, the ultimate power of the constitution that the party should also obey, but at the same time, he talked about importance of party leadership and he reject uh, constitutionalism. But uh, this is the way he positioned himself. But I will say that uh, two things. One is during the past decade or so, China, more than any country in history and certainly in Chinese history to issue Laws and the regulations in terms of amount of laws passed in China during the past decade. It's quite a phenomenon. And also, the parallel to that is the rapid rise of lawyers. Now, this reminds me of a story when Bill Clinton visited China as president in 1998. Uh, in Shanghai, he told the Chinese uh, leaders that you have too many engineers, we have too many lawyers, let's trade. <laughs> now, of course, China does not need to trade. China can produce their own. So in the past uh, decade or so, China really uh, have a very faster speed uh, to producing its own lawyers from China's 620 law school and law department. Now, uh, this is one thing we should pay attention to. Secondly, that the Xi Jinping uh, and the Xi Jinping leadership, Chinese Communist Party, first time in its history, devoted one platinum The fourth platinum of the 18th Party Congress on the rule of law. This is also quite historical. Now again, I see your point that uh, what Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party talk about rule of law differ from what people uh, in the United States or in Taiwan talk about. But uh, let's also be clear that no country can have the transition to uh, a rule of law within short period of time, in matter of years. This is uh, not uh, fair uh, to China. How we can ask how many? Uh, uh, years or decades for the United States really make a transition to uh, uh, a, a rule of law country. And for the UK, it's really, a uh, talk about uh, several centuries
0: for United States, many decades. So you're saying that despite all the lawyers being locked up and the journalists being censored, uh, you're seeing a progress that is uh, towards a country governed by rule of law. Absolutely. So even if right now... I'll it's not there yet.
2: Absolutely. If when you sometimes you talk about importance of law, talk about the uh, you know even in ambiguous term the constitutional authority, you leave the door open. You make uh, uh, human rights lawyers and uh, legal professions push for change. Now, one of the things I completed at the Brookings is to publish a book by a law professor called He Weifang. And uh the book was published, you know, a few years ago. And when he wrote that manuscript, in that book, in that manuscript, uh he challenged three people, namely Wang Lijun, the police chief in Chongqing, mm-hmm. second person is Bo Lai, third person is Zhou Yongkang. At that time, all three people were in power. So we published <laughs> that book. And uh, by the time that we uh, released that book, uh, I think it's 2013, one year after Bo Lai's fall, and uh, even before Zhou Kang's fall. That that tells you a lot. The lawyers and the law professors they use their limited power to push for rule of law in the country. So that's a, a story itself. Uh, it's quite revealing. Talk about the the, the contention. Talk about the uh, the struggle by legal professions for. Uh, a legal China. Now again, to a certain extent uh there's uh I look at the Chinese leadership when they claim they have the, the law degree, there's actually three groups of people. One is they have the uh, what they call the law degree, actually it's really Marxism or party or politics. Because uh, by Chinese definition law uh, Marxism is also a law. So this well, is well, one it's group. An ironclad <laughs> law of, of uh, the this, this is uh, this <laughs> one group. The second group is that actually they practice, uh, they study, uh, law, uh, in a, a very rigorous program, like, uh, Premier Li Keqiang. He attended law school at Beida for four years training. He even translated some constitutional, uh, scholars in UK into, uh, Chinese. So he did have a solid, uh, law degree, but he never practiced. Right. This is the second group. The third group, uh, people like, uh, the Supreme Court uh, judge, uh, uh, and also the, the, pro- some, uh, top prosecutors like uh, Zhou Qiang and uh, Cao Jianming. These people not only attend law school, the top notch schools in China. And uh, also some of them serve as a visiting scholar, visiting professor in United States or Europe as uh, law professors. Now then, uh, devoted their entire career in the legal profession. So this number of people, this third group is the most promising group. I do see their numbers increase, so it will take time. We do need to be patient with that uh, that development. So I'm not that cynical. Of course, again, China is far away from a real, uh, you know, government ro- controlled by the uh, legal profession and uh, or rule of law govern nature, uh, uh Separation of uh, power. Uh, uh, separation of power. Yeah, I, I, but I on the look- other hand, uh, I think China is quite impressive. Over the past few years or a couple of decades, made a solid progress towards that uh, direction. It's yeah,
1: interesting. It's, about- it's, it's interesting that I think that, that you, you use the same sort of three classification criteria that you would use for technocrats. Uh, and I, I just wanted to make one, one quick point. I mean, I, when I was studying technocracy in post Mao China, I was very impressed with how you had pointed out how deliberate the change in the leadership composition had been, that it was an actual decree by Deng Xiaoping, that he wanted to make sure that all uh, central committee members were college educated, that a certain percentage of them would have backgrounds in the natural sciences or in engineering. And that, I mean, at the peak of this, when you were writing, I think these were statistics that come straight out of your, your book, that, that uh, something like 75% of all uh, mayors of cities of over a million people or party secretaries of cities of over a million people, uh, something like over 80% of all provincial party secretaries, or provincial governors, they were all technocrats. If you looked at the composition of the Central Committee, you know, the 300-plus people in the Central Committee, more than 80% were technocrats at one point. Are we seeing a, a shift among the, outside of the Politburo Standing Committee, are we seeing a shift in the composition of, of these groups
2: in leadership as well? Yeah, this is uh, all levels, and uh, particularly in the senior level, the top levels, the decline of uh, engineer turned technocrats. So the your number that you refer to is largely correct. It's from zero in early 1980 to about uh, about 70% or 75% right. about uh, you know 10 to 15 years ago, then start to decline. Now it's about uh, 30%. Very, and, very uh,
1: interesting. And uh,
2: probably even low.
1: I'm surprised uh, that I'm not seeing more writing about this because it seems like a very, very important uh, shift in the leadership composition to me that's uh,
2: worth. Absolutely, because actually China does have uh, a very fast rate of elite turnover. You look at every five years, right. uh, you know, the Central Committee meeting, the, the members of Central Committee, the turnover rate is on average since, uh, nineteen, you know, eighties, is about sixty percent. So certainly, I mean, I just wonder sometimes in the United States, what's the turnover rate of our Congress, you know, our yeah, Senators? Not so high. <laughs> uh, 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 so in 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 it's ironic, you know, we are democracy, they are not. But uh they do have some other mechanism, so this is uh, uh related with my upcoming book, which will be will be out just in a couple of months well Talk we about, we, we, yeah. we
0: would like to ask you about that a little bit, but before we get to that, I have another question um about something I think you've written about quite a lot um i as far as I'm aware, I think you popularized the notion of looking at uh, the senior leadership and the Communist Party, in terms of two factions. One is the Communist Youth League faction, which is composed of people who weren't from Red Nobility. Their parents weren't revolutionary leaders and are often dismissively referred to as shopkeepers. Uh, and on the other hand, the princelings, you know, people whose parents generally were important revolutionary leaders. Does this distinction still make sense today in Xi Jinping's China? And you know, has has anything changed about this since you first started writing about this? I think that uh, this is what I
2: first wrote about uh, uh, ten years ago. I was the first one to use the term "one party two coalitions" or "one party two factions." Uh, largely follow what you said. This is a related to the fact that um, when you have the the collective leadership of the strongman politics of the Mao and them, you have to deal with these factions. Factions become more dynamic. They form coalitions and largely follow the, the de, uh, description you just made. One is the Zhang Zemin's faction. Usually, uh, the core groups, uh, previously Shanghai GAN, later become princelings. They usually advance their career from coastal China. The other group is come from the so-called Tuan Pai, the Chinese Communist Youth League officials. They usually come from humble family background, advance their career uh through you know agriculture or organization and the party affairs and from the inland region and uh, so these two groups coexist together, sharing power and uh no faction or no coalition can completely defeat the other and their skills complement each other they reach different sectors of the uh, of the society, one is entrepreneurs, pro-entrepreneurs, the other is pro, the so-called farmers, workers, and migrants. So that's a divide, of course, simplistic. Uh, but on the other hand, that uh, bear a lot of truth. Now, since Xi Jinping came to power, there's some important change. He consolidated his power. And uh, the previously that, uh, communist youth league, Tuan Pai, and the princelings or Jiang, Jiang's proteges usually equally, you know, represented uh, in, in, in the leadership. But Xi Jinping, actually, his people, or Jiang Zemin's proteges, Xi Jinping's part of that, dominated the Power Bureau Standing Committee. So it's a six versus one ratio. So that's a very important fact, Explain why Xi Jinping becomes so powerful. Because, you know, he used that cases of Lin Zhihua. Now he just recently, just, uh, he just tried and sentenced to life imprisonment for that scandal. About uh, he used uh corruption and also used the uh, the bodyguard to for his personal game and uh of the of the central committee, so that changed the dynamics but uh if you look at the structure of the leadership and especially low level, you still see the strong representation of the communist youth leagues. You cannot completely eliminate them, so the truth is that uh, he still need to compromise. And, uh, of course, that, uh, you want to find the best balance. On the one hand, should not lack the internal infightings to jeopardize or bureaucratic parties jeopardize effectiveness of governance or policy making, which was a problem under Fu Tao or Wen Jiabao. But at the same time, you need to make sure that uh, you united party rather than divided party. You got tremendous support from Different uh, sectors of the party, different, uh, you know, factions. So that is a delicate balance. Now, at the moment, Xi Jinping emphasized consolidated his power, but to a certain extent, he should understand that he could not uh, completely dominate power. At the moment, yes, you see that, uh, that he is the, the strongest man and, uh, maybe since Deng Xiaoping, but at the same time, his power has li- limitations that, uh, he constantly need to make a deal with various other stakeholders. Hmm. We'd so, love to hear
1: some examples of what I mean, because I think that in the dominant thinking right now, uh, he has consolidated his power more than anyone. It's the end of the era of collective leadership that he has pretty unequivocally asserted himself that he's in charge of four very very key working groups now uh, personally. So, give us some examples of why of, of of compromise that he still needs to make with other stakeholders.
2: Well, the the fact that he holds all these positions is not a sign of strength, but the weaknesses. Hmm. Yes, we know that Deng Xiaoping, in his final years, he did not He did not have any position except the Honorable Chair of the Bridge Association. That was Deng Xiaoping's title. Yeah, but at that time, uh, no one would doubt uh, where the power relied re- uh, on Deng Xiaoping. But uh, Xi Jinping, because of his vulnerability, he needed to consolidate his power. The fact that uh, he has a six-versus-one ratio in the standing committee gave him tremendous power to hold these positions. But the the, the, same, the
1: one though happens to be Li Keqiang, right? Yes, yes, the Li Keqiang. Maybe. Uh,
2: and but on the other hand, you look at the the personnel changes. He still has been very very cautious. And for example, the Tianjin Party Secretary has been acting for over a, a year, still cannot get uh, confirmed. That tells you a lot about the strong resistance. So. The point is that uh, highly likely in the 19th Party Congress, he has to accept some of the Communist Youth League leaders to enter the power bill standing committee. So the ratio actually will be less than six versus one. Assuming Li Keqiang will stay, he may move to to become the chairman of the National People's Congress. We do not know. Who Can we see. talk about Li Keqiang? Yeah, let's talk actually, about Li
0: because, I mean, it is kind of curious, like after going through the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era, uh, era when um, Wen Jiabao was very much a political force, um, uh, it does feel like um, Li, Li has has been weak, um, and marginalized marginalized line, yeah. very much playing second fiddle or you know not even uh to to um Xi Jinping uh, w- what do you make of Li Keqiang and the way he uh his career has gone in the last couple of years well
2: uh, when when the 18-party Congress uh, completed, I told uh, the media that uh, we should not call the new leadership as, as Xi Li administration, like what we said, Fu Fu Wen administration. Yeah. Just use the term Xi administration because Li Keqiang is marginalized. He's not at the inferential. He is not in charge of economic affairs. Right. It, uh, so the platinum, Li Keqiang was not even in the draft. Committee for that that important document that tells a lot about Li Keqiang. But on the other hand, I I don't think that the Xi Jinping could uh, you know uh, so easily to remove Li Keqiang. And this is related to fact that uh, you have all the, the the positions of the eleven or twelve leading groups. You cannot blame the problem to Li Keqiang. So that's uh, it's, uh, itself is a paradox. Put Xi Jinping in an awkward position. So you, at least you need to show some respect and. Uh, but also, Li Keqiang represents a very important force. Still, uh, these people have a lot of seats in the central committee. Uh, these are the governors, uh, provincial party secretaries, ministers. They usually follow Li Keqiang as in the Chinese Communist usually. League. So, uh, Xi Jinping need to be, uh, very, very careful. But on the other hand, that, uh, what you describe is, is accurate. But uh, the, the question is whether this is a temporary, that uh, Xi Jinping wants consolidate power for the effectiveness of delivering his policy, but uh, of course that uh, uh, if the economy continues to be uh, you know problematic, that uh, you need to take responsibility so it's double age in in the case of Xi Jinping's consolidated power, but ultimately, I don't think the current China people in the in the mood really wanted to see a really mao like figure. Uh, it's one thing to want the leadership to be strong, effective. It's quite another thing to want to see another Mao-like figure to emerge. Because intellectuals, Chinese intellectuals, usually don't like this kind of right. uh, situation. And the, the leadership structure, as I describe, the mechanism, the term limits, the age requirements, the sharing power, the regional representation, these mechanisms or collective leadership you know, measures probably more enduring, more effective than the outsider analysts realize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we should not be confused at a temporary consolidation power of the top leadership as a long-term trend. So I'm still optimistic in, I think, that the, the institution development probably is far more important than individual leader. Now, Xi Jinping's legacy will be decided whether he go along with the trend or against the trend
0: right in my view that brings me to the question i mean i think i made a prediction on this podcast uh, last year sometime that xi jinping would not just go quietly after his two terms as leader that you know if you if you amass this much control in your own hands why would you give it up do you think that at the end of his you know second term by convention Xi Jinping is going to get off the stage and make way for somebody else? Or do you think we might be looking at a situation where you have somebody, whether he has the titles or not, but is going to still have the the reins of power in his own hands? Well, uh, the truth is no one knows at this point. Uh, he yeah. himself,
2: of course, uh, may want to stay on, but he also uh, understand that his real legacy uh, should be judged in history and how he, how much he contributed to China's rise, how much he contributed to China emerge as a more power. Now, that depends on a lot of factors, depends on China's economy, depends on Chinese public view, depends on international environment, and uh, ultimately also a matter of luck. But the, uh, my view is to change the mechanism, institutional mechanism, to change the definition of generation of Chinese leaders, to change the party constitution and some of the mechanism for term limits and etc., it's very very big hurdle. And uh, again, everything is possible, but it's very premature to to uh, foresee to give a prediction at this point.
1: I'd take I, a bet uh, against you, Jeremy, on that. So, um, we'll, All right. We'll, anyway, well, um, one <laughs> I wouldn't
0: of, like to bet against the two of you, so right. I'll uh, <laughs> wait one and of, see. One <laughs> of
1: the, the legacies so far, for sure, will be, of course, the anti-corruption drive, which has been his, his signature uh, you know, since since he's been in. Now it's well into its fourth year. Uh, but it's also happening at the time of the economic slowdown, uh, as we've seen. The thinking that, that I've heard in, in some quarters is that either corruption – somehow kept the wheels greased and that a certain amount of it was healthy somehow to the economy. Uh, other people have suggested, maybe I'm, I'm more inclined to entertain this idea, that, that uh, the atmosphere of fear uh, because of the anti-corruption drive has, has, has cowed people who might otherwise have taken initiative to experiment economically or to do more, at least than is minimally required, uh, and instead that people are keeping their heads down uh, out of fear of being targeted by the anti-corruption campaign.
2: Well, this is a very good question. I think I, uh, uh, you know, we all know that when Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao were in charge, especially in their final years, maybe uh, the last two years, people were critical of them largely because so-called inaction, you know, Wuwei in Chinese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's actually become a very important uh, point on the part of uh, Xi Jinping and the Wang Qishan to challenge their predecessors. But ironically, because of the anti-corruption, it also leads to a new wave of inaction of local leaders. And uh, because uh, there's no incentive for local leaders to do anything, so they just wait. They do not do anything. But I don't buy the argument that uh, corruption is good for economy. When we look at these cases, whether it be Zhou Zhou Yongkang, Lin Jihua, and uh, 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 Guo Bo Xiong, and Xu Zaihou, these talk about the billions you know, a couple of billions, even ten billions US dollars corruption. I mean, no country can have this kind of sustainable development with this kind of degree of corruption. So this should be fixed, should be stopped. There's no question in my mind on that. But, uh, now it's a related with structure change of China's economy. I think when we history, when we look back, if, uh, Xi Jinping and Wang Ji really wanted to, to emphasize institutional arrangement or legal process of anti-corruption, I think they will move that direction after a couple of more years of the campaign. Because these, uh, Wang San and uh, Xi Jinping both mentioned that the uh, current anti-corruption is a campaign method. It's only deal with the symptom, not deal with the root cause, but they buy at least buy time to save the Chinese Communist Party and save the country. So I buy that argument, but eventually you need to consolidate the legal system uh, to use a legal mechanism to deal with corruption. Uh, so I'm confident that will be the case. So maybe looking back, uh, in history, that the past few years is a turning point. Of course, no country can eliminate the corruption, but the peak may be past in China's modern history, Mm. right? But on the other hand, it's uh, China is now in the, in the, in the period of a structure change from export-led economy to consumption-led economy from investment to consumption and for uh, previously the previously the you know the 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 strong cost the heavy cost of the environment degradation but now to a more sensitive uh, uh more concerned about the green consumption green development so that uh, structure change is still on the way it can be painful but also this occurred at the time that the the uh, the entire world experienced some economic slowdown not only emerging market, but also developed countries and etc., And also financial uncertainty, financial risk uh, involved. So that could be a painful period. But this will take some years, maybe three or four years. But I think what Xi Jinping and the leadership emphasize on consumption, on green development, on, you know, uh, service sector development are right policies. And to a certain extent, the domestic consumption is already picking up you know i was in suzhou and uh uh just a few days ago i mean i it's a, you know in a way it's a bad i did not see many foreigners and uh, most of the restaurants hotels are just chinese own uh, consumers you know in a way that's bad China should continue suzhou it's a it's, a, it's a part, it becoming a costable part of cosmopolitan city. There's a lot of investment from Singapore, from uh, South Korea, or from you know United States, but it uh, sounds like there's a, a lot of uh, foreign companies withdraw, so uh, in a way that's bad, but on the other hand, domestic consumption already become a driving force.
1: Sure, I mean, in 2015, the tertiary sector, actual services contributed more than 50% yep. of GDP for yes, the first time. Yes. Was, uh, uh, yeah. If
0: we can look forward um, again to next year, next fall, the 19th Party Congress, What's your understanding of it? Do you think that we can expect to see major changes in the composition of the Politburo, and especially of the Politburo Standing Committee? Or, you know, if you had to predict what's going to happen, what would you say?
2: Well, I think that the, the again, this will go back to my previous argument that the, the the term limits, the age requirement, will continue to be valid. So, which means that the five out of seven. Probably standing committee members will step down. And also among the 25 Party member, only probably 13 or 12 will stay on. Mm. So, but the, the, the biggest change will occur in the central committee. Previously, I mentioned that every five years, the, on average, will be 60%. But this time will be even larger. Will be 70% wow. change. So uh, this uh, will make the next party congress, 19th party congress, has the highest turnover rate since 1969 and uh, in the Ninth Party Congress. So that itself is very important development. So you will witness a major leadership transition.
1: We'll be watching that very, very closely. Um, we've seen arguably a, a significant concentration of power in the hands of, of, of Xi Jinping since the 18th Party Congress. Uh, you would argue that this is maybe a, a temporary uh, situation. Um, but we've also seen... Constricting public sphere. We've seen civil society being put on a very short leash. We've seen you know, a, a frightening of domestic uh, media, a kind of you know, tightening, at least, of controls over them. Uh, less tolerance for voices of dissent. More assertive behavior uh, in some spheres of international politics of, 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 of China's foreign relations. All of which I've been calling, by way of shorthand, the the new truculence. Uh, I don't know if that's an appropriate term but you've probably heard many different explanations as to why this is happening, why China seems to be more prickly, more bristly, uh, uh why it seems to to have l- less and less regard for American uh concerns over human rights and this sort of thing. What is going on in in your mind? What what do you think is 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 really behind this change?
2: Now, uh, China is a paradox uh, in so many ways, and um, what you describe—that the, the uh, media control, the tightening, you know, a political tightening control—and uh, also target some human rights lawyers and uh, NGO civil society—are not doing well. I mean, uh, these are all true. But uh, we should not uh, fantasize the previous administration. It sounds like under Hu Jintao, there's a uh, tremendous freedom. It's not like that. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but the thing is that, um, I would say that H China become increasingly pluralistic Chinese society. Now, it is true. There's a uh, tight control, but it uh, is also true. There's a very dynamic discourse. You look at the social media, look at the WeChat. There are a lot of criticism about the, uh, about the the leadership about the the political system. Yeah but don't you think it was Congress even Party? more
1: freewheeling in two thousand nine or two thousand eight? I I feel like it was more I mean the, the you know even I, though actually, the internet
2: I, I think that um um we need to be careful to compare. We should not single out one particular period. We should look at the overall uh development. You just give you one example. The most popular talk show uh in China actually uh, one is by Jingxing. He's a transgender woman. Uh, sure, sure, And, uh, we're uh, both friends of r- hers. Really. Uh, uh, and also Zhou Li Bo. This is another sure. talk show called China's Jane Reno. He actually now has a show in New York. I mean, these people are really spreading Western ideas and uh, their target is a, uh, is the middle class in Shanghai because uh, both shows are located in Shanghai. And, uh, if you listen to them, these are the talk shows very similar, very critical. and similar to their, counterparts in the United States. So you see tremendous tolerance. You see also look at the topics. It's very much down to earth. The topic is that, uh, that like any uh, other democracies. So I think in many ways that, uh, that China also become increasingly pluralistic, uh, diversified, and uh, uh, and the Chinese media become more commercialized and the commercial media will eventually lead to political pluralism. So in a way that, um, yes, if from time to time they will target some media, they will target some intellectuals. But, uh, early on, I mentioned about He Weifang, the law professors, uh, really, uh, call for constitutionalism. He's still a professor at the, Be- at Beida and still has his, uh, big follower in his WeChat, in his, uh, Twitter and et cetera. Uh, so I'm not that uh, pessimistic. And, uh, I think, uh, uh this is glowing pain. And uh, I hope that the Chinese leadership uh, will understand. Ultimately, uh, if they do not want to see too much rumors, especially China now is entering ru- uh, rumor season, they should open up the media, especially open up the official media, for real competition and uh, real uh, uh, provide the real sources of information.
0: Well, gosh, I hope they listen to you. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, we've had a number of guests recently who are much more optimistic than I have been <laughs> of the last year or two. Yeah. Well, let's hope you're all but right. It is good to hear.
1: <laughs> I'm curious, though. Um, You know, the Brookings Institution is is a very reputable and well respected thing. And as the, the director of the John L. Thornton China program here, your voice must be heard in Zhongnanhai, right? I mean, there are you have access. Do you feel that you are able to speak your mind very, very clearly, and that you're, you're, uh, when you are critical, you're being heard?
2: Well, in uh, the topic, the nature of my topic is very, very sensitive. And uh, but sure, you're I, talking about uh, leadership, right? Yeah. yeah, but on the other hand, I has been doing that for now almost thirty years, and uh, I usually avoid to spread the rumors. I very careful. <laughs> Usually. To, uh, <laughs> um, uh, sometimes we run low, that's true or not. And uh, you cannot completely reject rumors. And, but, uh, my main methodology is based on the database. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about the collective leadership is still enduring and the mechanism still work, I use the facts. So I look at the, uh, you know, 376 central committee members and look at the 20,000 the leaders, their their biographies, their biographical information, you can project the rise and the fall of certain groups. And uh, so with the same data, you know, early on, I can predict the rise of technocrats and decline of technocrats, but uh, also where the Communist Youth League is still a valid faction, my answer is yes. So therefore, I think the power must be shared and uh, China Xi Jinping, uh, if he's smart, I do believe that he's smart, that he will not miss that point. So his cons- consolidating power for the right cause, like uh, the military reform, like the, the, the anti-corruption, uh, like uh, what he at least he talked about, uh, uh, the rule of law, these are all good things. But at the same time, he needs to reconcile his tension with uh, intellectuals, especially liberal intellectuals. I think in modern days, they are important.
1: Well, they've been important all along. I mean, it's always <laughs> been the, the fundamental dynamic of Chinese politics is the I relationship. Agree with you, between, but not right? so
2: many people agree that with that. You uh, know, okay. I think that the uh, the fact that there's so much criticism also reminds you that uh, this is a very dynamic country, and uh, leadership should be really understand that ultimately the trend is much stronger than individual power. And uh, so uh, you should go along with that trend rather than against that trend.
1: And let's hope that they do. Li Cheng, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. And we are very much looking forward to your next book, which is Chinese Politics in the Xi Jinping Era, Reassessing Collective Leadership. Uh, When can we expect to see that? You said in just a few months?
2: Yeah, in a couple of months. Uh,
1: Great. We're really looking forward to it. And I hope that we get a chance to talk to you about that book once it comes out. Sure, yeah. Uh, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that The Cynical Podcast is powered by Subchina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can also follow Subchina on Twitter at at News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash news. Recommendations, Jeremy. Why don't you kick us off?
0: All right, I'd like to recommend a, uh, a kind of a dialogue on the website of uh, the Lowy Institute or institution in Australia, uh, the LowieInterpreter Inter- dot uh, org. There's a review uh, by Hugh Weiss of Kurt Campbell's new book about the pivot to Asia.
1: It's called The Pivot, in fact, right? The Pivot.
0: It is called The Pivot. Wait, I uh,
1: thought the, the, the word pivot had gone out of style. They were using the rebalancing
0: now. but I think The Pivot is back. Um, <laughs> and Hugh White writes a very critical review of the book and of The Pivot. And what's interesting is that Kurt Campbell actually replies to the review and, you know, defends his views and his book. And I myself... I'm still, this is one of those issues where I don't really yet feel as though I have enough understanding to have an opinion. And it's really interesting to see both sides of the debate in a very civil and civilized and articulate way uh, talk about this issue. So I would recommend that exchange. It is
1: very ideas. good. I highly recommend it as well. It's a, a fascinating exchange. Uh, Li Chung, what do you have for us?
2: Well, I would recommend uh, Joshua Ramos' new book called Seventh Sense. Uh, this is his new book uh, to look at the networking in today's world. Hmm. And as we know that Joshua Ramos um, is a China expert, and um, uh, he wrote the Beijing Consensus, he uh He coined was, the
1: phrase actually the Beijing consensus. That's correct. That
2: uh this is uh, one of the best uh, writers you uh, know uh, in my view in our time. But um uh, he has a remarkable career. He currently serves as a as a deputy uh, manager of Kissinger Associate. And uh but his interests far go beyond China and beyond politics. So that book uh, really uh, deal with some issues that uh, in our time, the challenges and opportunities. So I recommend that book.
1: Did you know Joshua when he was living in Beijing?
2: I,
0: I met him once. Yeah, yeah. I, I
1: hung out with him a few mm. times. He's a really interesting guy. I mean, I think he was like a, 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 a fighter pilot, not a fighter okay, pilot, yes. but yeah.
0: No. And the Time magazine's Times, editor. yeah. He,
1: he yeah. was a time editor. Really had a meteoric career. He's sort of Homo Davosicus or whatever. You know, he's he's very much a, a Davos man, right? <laughs> uh, good guy though, real good guy. In spite of that. Uh, and uh, i'm going to recommend something that actually ties into what we were talking about at the very beginning about scientism and technocracy um you know just taking us way back there was a book that was really influential in in my own thinking that's by a guy named dwy quack uh, it's called scientism in Chinese thought, nineteen hundred 1900 to nineteen fifty, and it focuses not only on you know the early kind of May fourth generation and their embrace of kind of social Darwinism and then of, of, of what they understood as science not all, as a method, but really almost as a body of, of knowledge, as a kind of religious body of knowledge, as as a kind of new orthodoxy, uh and how that has had really continued to in infect and and um Inform the views of the Chinese Communist Party, and in their embrace of, of course, doctrinaire Marxism. And then I think it, it was still very much present in the technocrats who emerged in in the early post Mao period as well. Uh, Scientism in Chinese thought by D.W.Y. Kwok. I, I was looking; it's no longer available in print. You can find PDFs of it though uh, that you can download by for two. free. <laughs> I don't
0: know <laughs> could, be could be there could be there I don't know usually nothing so scholarly could be done in, in that place yeah, there's a lot of scholarly stuff yeah. that's pirated on Baidu yeah, I don't know if you are aware of that I, 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 I wouldn't know I'm not scholarly anyway I no longer work for Baidu so feel free to uh, anyway I want to thank you again
1: and uh, it was great to talk thank to you thank you um, yeah. we, we look forward to, to, to chatting with you again and to and reading
0: you. your book when it comes out this fall the cynical
1: podcast yeah. is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo My Myself and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, to Amadeo Tumulillo, and to Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Please drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.